morning and welcome back to the second hour of Love, Babs, Love Talk. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. I am delighted this morning. Got my nephew on. <laughs> hey, nephew. <laughs> let me let oh. me introduce him properly because, you know, all that education. We got to make sure we. So this is the young Donald, uh, Donald D. McCauley, Jr., Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Sport and Entertainment Management at Quinnipiac University uh, Linder School of Business Center. And uh, and he has a new podcast called Dr. DJ Podcast. And uh, so he's coming on to talk about you know, him, why he started a podcast. I was on the podcast. Ife was on the podcast. Uh, my my nephew was on, my other nephew was on the podcast. We got all the all the good people on the podcast. How you doing, young brother? I'm doing good this morning. I'm doing great. Right now, everything is it's moving quickly this morning, but um, I'm I'm in good spirits. Got a lot of work to do today. I, li- I like to hear a black man say he's in good spirits. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It has to be. It has to be a necessity. I love it. I love it. So let me tell you. So uh, the young Mister Doctor McCauley is a former two sport college and professional athlete. Uh, he is a New Haven native. He's a father, a scholar, a professional educator, a counselor, a personal development consultant, a business owner, and uh, assistant professor of management in the School of uh, Business at QU. So uh, that's a lot of hats. I got too many jobs now you said it like that. I think I realize why I'm so exhausted with time. <laughs> I'm trying to do all those things every day. Every day. And parents don't take a break. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, you've met Eva, so Eva doesn't, Eva doesn't take breaks. Yes, yes. So so uh, I know I know your mama, because she's my Sora. I know your father. I know your stepmama. She's my Sora. So I know I've known you pretty much all of your 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 life. So mm-hmm. tell me about this this educational world that you're in. Did you know uh, that this is the path for you? No. So I I, I think I said on the last podcast I did. Um, this was never in the plans. Uh, when I left uh, James Ellis High School, proud alum, um, I went to prep school, played football, ran track, and I had the expectation of just going pro in there and just becoming a strength coach, becoming a trainer because it just, it just, it just worked. Um, but I think through the process, um, I became a better student, but I wasn't a good student when I started. Like, I mean, uh, and I, I, someone asked me that yesterday, it's, it's those expectations. So when I left Hill house, um, no, no, no shots, but when people are graded by behavior, um, versus quality, and I had that real realization when I got to prep school and I got that first paper that had a lot of red, a lot of red ink. Um, and I was like, Ooh, this is, I'm not strong here. And then, and then kept doing the same thing and got some more red ink, got to college, got some red ink. Um, and I, something was off. Like school was, school was difficult. And it wasn't until I actually got to my master's and realized that I was dyslexic. Oh, okay. That was this eye open. So I just thought I just wasn't good at this thing called writing and research and everything. I'm great in math. I'm more of a stats person. Um, So when I graduated, um, because of the the struggles as an undergrad, you weren't in a great position to get into grad school. And I got into grad school because I still was I still was athletic. I still was gifted. I still was able to coach. So I went in as a GA through athletics um, uh, on a probationary basis, take a couple tests, perform a couple classes. But 
it, it's a weird thing because once I had the accommodation and it was real that I um that I had that I was dyslexic in that in that form, um, I never used an accommodation. I never I never had a special extra time or anything else. It just once it clicked and I learned how I learned. I've never gotten anything lower than a B since. Mm. So what happens is once I graduate, the full story is I'm at Troy University in my master's program doing well. Um, I get an opportunity to go to the Atlanta Falcons um, for a sport management job training. Um, and I meet Mark Williams, who was right at the time, I think he was working with Alabama State and the NCAA. And he's also one of the um, leading collaborators for hip hop and athletics back during the um, champion sports. And he comes to the school and says, have you ever thought about getting a PhD? I like, I, so I like your presentation. I like what you're doing. And he said, I'll shop you around. He didn't know I was from Connecticut. He introduced me to Dr. Cooper, told me to go down to the Black Student Athlete Summit down in Texas University of uh, in Austin. And from there, I just, I was in a PhD program. And I was green. I still, <laughs> I, I still was afraid that I'm like, I don't want no more red marks on papers because it just, it didn't feel good. Like I didn't, I didn't like that at all. And so I continue to be green. I continue to be humble to the process, um, following the instructions that I got from, from my instructors at UConn and, and, and move through. So education really wasn't in the, in, on, on, on my, on my menu. I just knew that the way I thought was something that benefited students. That's an, that's an, that's an amazing story. Uh, Dr. McCauley, because because you're young enough where young people could look at you and probably there are some kids sitting in classes, probably at Hill House, who think the way that you thought back then. I'm not cut out for this because I can't seem to get this. Mm -hmm. And th does I that think weigh on your mind? Do you think about that? Do you, does that I, weigh in your brain? Yeah. So as a as an educator, I I outside of just thinking about rigor and how I want to set up the class and be creative. And I love discourse. I love dialogue. I love to explore topics. Um, but I also have that um, humbleness where I understand what my journey was to get there um, without accommodations, just, just hard work, I would say. Um, and so when I grade, I think about that. Like, what, what, where, where are they weak at? How can they improve? Um, because I think some people believe that education is just, for a particular group, for those that are in tag. And, and then absolutely when you see the stratification of our educational system, there are tiers. So when you come into a building, you have, I remember, I remember being in the Macy's program at Hill House, you have Macy's, you have AP, you have college prep, and then you have, you have general. And, <laughs> and the fact that you, the fact that you have tiered programs, which life is tiered in that particular way, um, that how do they still have the same aspirations when you've taken so many of the, essential qualities out of education. You take the vocation away. I mean, I, I, I love, I've worked at AutoZone. I work on cars sometimes. Um, and when you took that out, you took that out of the building, it's like, well, someone has to go somewhere else. They got to take out a loan and go to this different school. Like some folks could have walked out as plumbers and HVACs and, and carpenters fresh out of high school and ready to join the workforce. And back, I mean, I graduated 2004. So we're talking about 19 years that some of these students probably working on some of these projects right now that are happening in New Haven, mm. but didn't get a chance for education to be a benefit for them at the time. So when you think about education, I mean, 
I mean, education right now is such a loaded conversation. No matter where you no matter where you jump in at, it's a loaded conversation. Because it seems as though we can't figure out how to do it and do it effectively and do it for the masses in the way that we did, I don't know, post-World War II, right? Like, like, <laughs> like we understood how to create education for for everybody when it was uh industrial revolutionary time. But now we're in this we're in this AI world and we don't seem to be able to get a handle on how to do this because those old tools don't seem to be of benefit or are they? I don't, I don't so, know. So I, I would say they are of benefit. I say that AI is coming. It's it's on its way. There's nothing we can do to get it out the classroom. Um, but like I think about my, my son, for example, I'll go, I'll go back to my experience. Um, he is a, is an engineer just naturally. Like he, he's been drafting houses and building different things. And so, I think about that, how AI could benefit him now. Um, but one of the problems when is that education became so institutional that it wasn't about knowing, it was about trying to get the right answer. And there was no right answer in terms of like um, watching different generations understand that there are new issues and new problems. Mm -hmm. And so when you make individuals compliant to answers, they identify with grades, the grades become their identity and they're not interested in knowing more about the things that are interested in. And so when someone comes to me and like, well, I'm an A student. I'm like, well, yeah, that's nice. But I don't know that. I don't know what that means. Are you, are you, are you excellent at math? Are you excellent at science? Um, This does not give you a full picture of what the process is. And so when you take that knowing away and curiosity away, everybody is really trying to focus on like, what grade can I get that will take me to the next space because it's institutional now. So the only way to get to the next space is a recommendation or you having a catalog of grades that says like you can make it at the next space. Mm. Un ungrading is the term that we use. I've seen it one time as an undergrad, but I'm like, ungrading is something that we don't want because we need to find something to label people. Label if they're able to be successful and, and make it through the next phase. And People have that now that that analogy, and I've heard folks say like, if you if you have D's and C's in high school, then what do you think college is going to do for you? And and I think I sit in the gap where if you find that right educator, that right motivator, that internal motivation, that can completely change overnight without without any extra support going to going to uh, Sylvan's or any other learning center, unless there's unless there's something like diagnosed and observant. I love it. So, so we can't talk about education without talking about the school to prison pipeline. At least that's where I am these days. Like mm -hmm. they're one and the same. And just the fact that you were talking about the, the hierarchy and the tier, the tiers of, of an institution of, of education, that sounds, I hear that and I think, well, that's the prison con industrial complex system. Like that's, that's just what it is. It's, it's compliance, it's uniforms, it's structure, it's, being told it's no freedom, there is no uh, imagination, there is no, you know. There's a combination of things, and I can only speak from from my experience and some of the experiences that have been shared with my friends. So when I think about the pipe, prison pipeline through education, um, I, I sit there and I sit next to athletics to the prison pipeline because mm. in order to get to incarceration or any other process, it means that the space that I'm in 
is not supportive. Um, and I've had individuals have conversations about when the school environment is not supportive and welcoming and their their sense of belonging is just outside, they go outside. And it just so happens that we're in a space where outside has some 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 consequences that are that are over policed and over sanctioned. And so we recognize what particular behaviors. So because someone got suspended a lot, I guess someone could do a study and say there's a high probability this person may have a, have may have an interaction with with police and, and something else. There's also data that said just being black and male in different circumstances that they will encounter policing. The reason why I kind of pivoted into the the image of black maleness and masculinity, it shows itself and it's over exaggerated through sport. So when you think about sport, we think about these early morning wake ups. Coach becomes the overseer. You got to get up at this time. You got to lift at this time. You got to read at this time. You got to do all these things at this particular time um, with with this. And you know, I say why you're kind of bound in a certain space because many folks are using these athletic opportunities as an escape. The problem when I think about athletic culture is that when you think about specifically contact sports like football um, and other sports, but I think football more in generally, um, when you constantly use violence as, as the, as the testing piece for, for good and sound play defense, then what are you going to do with that when it, when the season ends? And so I hear many folks have conversations about their athletic career from high school and they talk about what they were able to do in those, in that particular skill set to be athletic and talent and aggressive. It's policed in ways that ends up in prison. I mean, there's no possible, I mean, one of the studies I was always thinking about is asking some folks that have, have, have that had to go in and came out, what was their high school experience and what did they connect to? Um, and sometimes those conversations come, come about when we talk about their, their reason for playing sports was maybe discipline, um, exercising, exercising some emotions that they just couldn't, that weren't fitting in the classroom. Um, and then when you still have that athletic identity and sense of self, where do you put that now in the larger space? One thing I've never seen in my entire career, you've never seen someone 6'11 working at Stop and Shop. And I, <laughs> I, I say that as a funny moment because when you see someone at 6'11 at a certain age and size and weight, you have this assumption about where they're supposed to be because yes, if you're six eleven, you can do, you can probably touch the ceiling. You don't really need to touch the top shelf, but you're, you'll never see someone that tall working in, in groceries and in retail because it doesn't fit. So the question is, where are they going? Mm, that's pretty powerful. You know, so much of, so much of uh, athleticism and the, and the, and the, and the, and the nature of sports, sports playing is tied to leadership in the building of leadership. And, and we use sports in our community and by our communities, I mean, black and brown communities as a way to sort of uh, curtail movement of young people. I think, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I grew up playing sports. My brothers grew up playing sports. I played sports in high school. I played a little bit in college. So I, I understand the dynamics of, of being on a team and teammanship. Yeah. But I think we've, We've gone so far away from building a teammanship that we that is really a, a mechanism for corralling uh, uh, our activity of young people that we think might be uh, uh, problematic. We That's put, I think, as a practice, and I've we've seen this. We we put students and sports and activities into particular pockets, 
So athletics has the potential to teach leadership. It has the potential to teach teamwork, but it it's not an automatic. Because when I think about when folks get recruited and who get the ball, who doesn't get the ball, everybody doesn't get an opportunity to be visible. And so it creates sometimes a crab in a barrel mentality um, because they're looking at it as limited opportunities. When you go to some of these athletic powerhouses, and this is why when we when we do athletics well and highlight all the things that our students are doing, when you go to an athletic powerhouse and you're in a senior class, there's 12 people that probably got scholarships to the different institutions. So they're not thinking like, I need to be better than him to get a chance. But when you're in a town and only one person gets a scholarship or two people get a scholarship, it makes it seem like all of us are not going to go. And so every every practice, every time you get a chance, it's about it's about me. It's the story of me. Um, and the problem is in certain spaces, these are team sports. So the only sport I ever played that's an individual sport is track and field, unless I'm on a relay. So it's I'm the I'm the best me that I can be at this moment in my lane, running around as fast as I can. And I'm measured against my next competition who decides to be the next lane over, who's probably going to have a bad day if he sees me. Mm. So do we, do we, do, do we believe that sports in this country or in the world that matter needs a makeover, an overhaul, a reimagining of what sports ought to mean at, at, at all levels? Because, you know, Dr. McCauley, I see these little kids playing football, like little, little, little kids. I never allowed my <laughs> sons to play little because I just felt like uh, they already had some behavioral issues that I could see developing, and I just didn't want to add violence to it. <laughs> and I, and I, th I think that's a, I think you bring up a great point. I think, yes, there should be a reimagination about how we think about sports and how do we make them accessible and also transferable. So... Um, I'm working with um, Elm City Elite or Elm City Sports Institute. You know, we, we had a conversation with one of their directors about when you have intentional themed practices. So let's let's say that today's practice for Pop Smith or Pop Warner is about teamwork. And so I'm going to strategically think about practice as as episodes that provide teamwork. It's not an it, we can't assume that the student will want teamwork. So so I think that you use practice as spaces to have character moments most of the time people talk about character moments they talk about the game they talk about a situation or some adverse situation um because when i think about the little ones and what they're learning most of the time they're playing because they want to go to the league and they'll tell you that just outright i'm like well that's nice but there's something else you want to do and why you're here and i've had a student once and this is probably i told the story many times had a student that wanted to play basketball he was, I was a youth development coordinator at Brennan Rogers. The student was, he was too smart, but he like, he had a, he had a disposition. He had a discourse. He always liked to argue, not in an aggressive way, but enough that he would, he would question. I said, he said he wanted to go to Georgetown and play basketball. I said, you should go to law school. Georgetown has one of the strongest law schools. I think you'd be great there. Um, and he said, well, you can't do both. He said, you can't do that. He said, you can't go to law school or you can't, be pre-law and play basketball. You got to do something else. So in his mind, sport was an avenue to buy his mama house because his goal was to buy his mama house. And I'm like, you have a greater chance of just using education in a different way to buy your mama house because there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to monetize your athletic career. Um, 
right now he currently is in the business school at the University of Connecticut, which is a great opportunity. I saw his mom a couple of weeks ago, but the fact that that conversation, whether whether that conversation stuck or not, he made a decision to go to college. He does not play basketball at UConn, and understood <laughs> like he like like yo you 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 can still be successful and do all the things that you want to do for your community and family um, with sport or without sport, and having both is excellent. Uh, mm. I mean, if you can get if 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 we could create a community, not to say New Haven, for example, you create a community where you have athletic talent, which we see it just grows out the ground. And then you have students that have an athlete that has an opportunity to get an academic scholarship. Because this is, and I, I, I think about that example when I think about my friends in law school is because in law school, they, they're set up in ranking and scales. Same thing, we stratify them in classrooms. If everybody really is talented, can the entire class get A's without the teacher feeling like, hey, man, I, I don't know if I'm trying hard enough. So is that entire- Yale though? Ain't that ain't I, that Ivy League? Because they don't give they don't give they don't give a- athletic scholarships. So if you well, play, you play because you want to play. So I think that's the new policy. So I think Yale does give athletic scholarships. We do have conversations around grant and aid, which I think a lot of our students could benefit from grant and aid. Um, but scholarships are available, and so them being able to be in a position of having an academic scholarship would be helpful for them. So if you're just relying on the sport, because back in this, I'll just say back in the nineties, there were folks that had like two fives that were, but they were the top talent. They were nationally ranked. They went to college. Now, they may not have stayed long, but they went to college because at that time, schools were offering scholarships, looking on talent and then putting students in like these basket weaving courses that really never contributed to their matriculation <clears throat> through college, but they allowed them to come. That's not the option right now. You, I can find somebody who runs a four 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 five, who's six foot and has a above three zero GPA, and is probably top twenty in his class, and has has a can can hold himself can hold himself in the college ranks. That's that's probably where the market's at. If you have a two zero in high school or two five, and you just the light bulb went off junior senior year to say now I'm going to start doing work. You're, you're setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. And that disappointment has hurt a lot of athletes with their transition, high school and college. Mm. Like it's, it's that booby miles. Mo- it's not booby miles. What's the booby mama? Booby miles moments from Friday night lights. When he tears his ACL and I've done the same thing. He sat there in that car and was like, what am I now? Now that these legs don't work. And I think part of that is not just what the institution tells you. It's also the idea of what you believe for yourself as like practicing those skills. This is a good conversation. And I want to have I want to have more of it, but I want to I want to I want to shift over to this podcast that you've just launched and and oh. and the, and the reason for it. So, Doctor DJ Podcast, what what was the thinking behind it? Were you sitting somewhere saying, you know what, there's a missing voice out here, and I want to fill it? I've had. As as we're doing now, like I had great conversations just over the years with friends and advising students and counseling. Um, and I don't know if I really it was really about the podcast. I think I was having conversation and what the original podcast name was supposed to be called was Make It Make Sense. Because I think I had that was my skill. My skill was make it plain, make me understand, make it make sense. And then I realized when I was doing some trademark stuff that make it make sense was already taken. And and then it was authentic to me that I had just finished the PhD. 
Um, now I'm doctor. I'm operating still by DJ. So it allows me to still be a little con contemporary and young without being uh, Dr. Donald. Um, and part of it was telling the walk in the journey. And so I've done a good job. At least I would say I did a, did a good job of not using my story as a measuring stick for other people, but understanding the struggles where that were happening in between, whether you find out you're dyslexic, you find out that you're having anxiety, whether you encounter folks that have depression, um, you're having struggles in different spaces. And so really navigating those conversations um, for me grew out of my growth and my faith and my faithful walk. And so when we kind of do the Dr. DJ podcast, it was, can we have candid conversation with individuals that are still on a life journey? They're interested in self-discovery. There's a million books out here that talk about self-discovery and, and finding your true self. And that conversation just wasn't, um, it wasn't mainstream in my community. They were focusing on other things and other ways of trying to go viral through like through videos and things that become, that could become destructive in, 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 in later times. But so we created the podcast really to have candid conversation and we kept it local. And it really wasn't about if outside people are seeing it, they want to share it, they like it, great. But this is the space in terms of our transition, having self-discovery conversations with people that I've known have done it well and they get they get a chance to tell their stories. And then we're looking to transition and saying, can we have a space where we have the Dr. DJ podcast youth edition? Can students grapple with um self-discovery? Can they grapple with trying to find their passions? And what are the things that lead them to find it? Because everybody's motivated in different ways. And I think for me, I've just used my faithful walk or my process of faith as a way of trying to have that conversation. Because everyone else I talk to that has been on the podcast has a particular story where there is some kind of spiritual or religious bond that allows them to be motivated to try to do the things that they want to do every day. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, because I, I know some of your story. I know. Uh, that you you've had some mental health challenges. I know that you uh, that you are very open about uh, 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 seeking help uh, to maneuver those kinds of waters. Uh, you are, are a very young black man uh, where these kinds of conversations about mental health are somehow or other not um, getting getting where they ought to go. We have too many black young men who are struggling. Um, with how to uh, be strong, be men, and vulnerable uh, with what's going on in their hearts and minds. Well, as, now, sisters, we we have whole networks. Black women are very good about creating networks and building spaces for themselves to get what they need. Uh, most of us, the majority of us, but I don't know if black men know how to do that. Even black men who are in black fraternities, that is still. Uh, uh, a touchy kind of conversation. How, talk a little bit about your thoughts on on that. Um, we're at, we're at the right right precipice. Um, I, I think about the culture and what what I've I've come to kind of call it is our denial. Um, what are the gender contracts that we have for ourselves about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to process? What does it mean to define what kind of masculinity you want for yourself? Um, what does it mean to actually matriculate from a young man? And when did you become a man? What is it? It goes back to that original question. Like, what is it? When do you know that you are a man? 
And and I think this is the more contemporary reality where it's like these ideas of what manhood was were depicted through media stereotypes, um, different um, caricatures that were just existed in mainstream society and saying like, this is what this community is. This is what the environment creates. And this is what you're going to be. And so you become like sanctioned to some degree to be this. I I, I also think about the mental health piece about when black men share their emotions, pains, traumas, because some of it's more of mental well-being where it's actually about mental health. And I, I think this it's a it's 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 they're not synonymous. So someone can have a actual mental health issue, meaning that they have particular chemicals that are being released that are allowing their emotions to not be regulated. That it it could be regulated, could not for homeopathic stuff like that. But sometimes someone just thinking about their own mental wellness saying that, how do you feel today to be present in the things that you want to do? Um, and then also mental health would suggest um, your habits, your habits and integrity to your own personal self. When someone says, I want to be good at something, the question begs, are you willing to sacrifice your vulnerability to ask the question to another man or anyone else or any institution that's going to help you support, get to your growth? I would say that that's a that's a that's a large crowd, but that's a mental health issue because sometimes they're not willing to ask the question because they're from this. And we go back to educate this space of why well, know what I'm supposed to do or, or I think that hard work will produce the outcomes that I desire, which is not true. And so by the time folks have and we say dig their hole, dig their grave, many of them have a hard time getting out. And and I, and I write I write about even my, my dissertation. We talk a lot about. What does it mean to be emotionally incarcerated? Because mm. I can do both. I can say that I can experience somebody who is emotionally incarcerated and I can know that that person does not have the, the, uh, I don't know what word for it. They, they, they haven't explored themselves enough to say they're able to be open about acknowledging that I'm not able to connect with the self that I want. I'm not able to connect with my emotion. And so part of that, when I started the work, it was about, reading about this this rise in black male ideation and black male suicide and these sometimes these were athletes sometimes they were having survival's guilt of leaving the community leaving people home thinking about the burden of carrying the weight of a city on their shoulders and the question was once they got incarcerated within themselves they didn't know how to get out and the spaces that they were going to and asking those questions they didn't have a resource for them e either and I think it was a, it's a generational shift. So I think back in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, um, fathers were like stoic. They were hard workers, but stoic. And so you have this, this industrial generation that comes um, where factories jobs are now leaving and individuals are now working into the corporate space. And now this is about compliance. So for black males, for a lot of them, how they experience trauma, violence, oppression in different spaces some of them adopt these ideas because they believe that that's part of that's part of the narrative. And so I, I just remember growing up in New Haven and you would ask somebody, what does it mean to be black? And it was like, well, you got to live, you got to live somewhere. There's no grass. And you like, you got to have the, the, you want, you want this grimy story. And I'm like, but someone told you that this is the story. This is different than saying that my circumstance right now may be here. Um, but that's not indicative about what your full story should be. And so when you start having this kind of grimy reality that you're, I, I need this, I need this to make sure that my blackness is intact 
And it's also going to fortify a particular kind of masculinity that is not going to be helpful. And so when we continue to kind of participate in those ideas, you create more generations that have this ability of saying, well, if it's time to go to college, you're like, that's not for me. And it's not that yes. it's not for you. It's not that oh. it's not for you. It's, be, it's because someone, you, you're still trying to operate in this space because you're having this awkward, um, disp- you're having this awkward disposition about going to a college campus and seeing all this grass around here in these buildings and thinking that's not for you. Yeah. Because you're looking for something, you're looking for something else. You're looking for the gym. And that's not, <laughs> and that's 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 a very small concept, but I can understand when I talk to athletes and men, I can unpack that idea for you and I can tell you where you got it, and I can tell you how to put that away because my job is to expose them saying, if I can tell you one person has done it, they're not they're not an anomaly. I can tell you two people have done it. So what I'm trying to do is break this idea because you've seen folks that haven't done it. And so now you think that this is your self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Powerful. I love it. So how often does your podcast launch and where can we listen to it? So currently right now we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Um, you can look it up at Dr. DJ Podcast. We show the reels um, on Instagram we will once we finish season. Well, I guess we have some good, good some. We have some some prizes coming up. So once we finish season one, we will set up the uh, the YouTube channel, and so everyone can do a recap of everything that happened in season one, and then we'll have a a deeper dive in terms of where we plan on going. Um, but those are the two platforms right now available: Apple Apple Podcasts and then Spotify. And you can catch the reels on Instagram through the Doctor DJ Podcast, and I post some stuff on a uh, Doctor Don McCauley on Instagram. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I want you to come back. And and let me also say uh, happy uh, Founders Day, Phi Beta Sigma. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I, I, just even in that conversation, I had it, I made it known and I put a post up. Um, my grandfather passed away six years ago at the same time. And I it was on Founders Day. So for I think for me and my father reminded me that this is where I, we learned a lot of those particular skills about um, what does it mean to succeed? Um, and I think he, I always think about him and his legacy because he probably was one of the greatest advocates. I remember I got a supportive family, I got a large village, but him specifically, <laughs> him specifically talking and I, and I have videos and videos and I, and I always think about that generational shift in terms of, I grew up with my grandparents that throughout my, throughout my childhood, my grandfather retired from Winchester at the same time that I was born, like maybe the same, that same week. Um, and so to be able to see this is a person that picks you up from school when we were on Valley Street and he's always been there. Grandmother makes the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They sit on the porch. They walk you to the bus stop. And I think they've been a great asset. So seeing him and just seeing him also in the community and recognizing all the things that he's done. Like when we used to have block watches on Winthrop, him putting up baskets, him putting up signs, him showing respect, um, being stern, but having a great sense of humor, being a man of God, um, representing himself well in the church and the community, I think that that was a great testament. And I think it it resembles the things, all the things that my father does and all the other things that I think a lot of people that have been impacted by his time. So I think about Founders Day, but also I, it's been it's been reshaped because it's always a reminder of this was probably one of my founders. Mm, that's a wonderful sentiment. And you do come from good people, you know, strong people and a, <laughs> and a community that that uh, cheering you on and wants all the best for you. So, thank you, thank you. You belong to us, and we belong to you. So, so thank you for being on today, young Mister uh, Doctor Don McCauley. It's a pleasure.
I'm excited to come back whenever next time. Oh, absolutely come back. I, we have to talk more. There's more to unpack. So thank you so much. Have a good one. Enjoy the rest of your week. You too. All right. Thank you, Harry Droz. Play us out. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>